Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 115, Hard Times for Venice, A Very Naughty Dodger, and Some Funny Names, 1339-1356. In the last few episodes, we followed the adventures of the Visconti family of Milan from around 1340 to the early 1380s. In so doing, we also managed to follow the adventures of other cities in northern Italy, such as Verona, Ferrara, Mantua, Parma, and so on, as well as looking into parts of northern Tuscany with cities such as Lucca and Pisa. We also briefly mentioned Florence, but obviously the Florentines will be getting a lot more attention quite soon. I've said it before, I'm saying it now, and I'm going to probably say it again, that we will never manage to go in-depth into all the interesting stories in Italy in this period. We would need a podcast within a podcast within a podcast to do so. No, my dear, dear listeners, we are forced, if we want to get anywhere at all, to concentrate a bit more on the big players in each historical period. That means that now we've been visiting with Milan for a while, we need to pop over and see what is going on in Venice. We saw that in the early 1300s, actually at the end of the previous century, a de facto oligarchy had been cemented in Venice with the event known as the Serrata del Maggior Consiglio, the closure of the Upper Council the main governing body of the Serenissima Republic, composed of a certain number of prominent families. The closure meant that no new families could enter and the membership in the Consiglio became hereditary, meaning that the government of Venice would be under the control of a hereditary oligarchy, as we said. This was made official by the Doge Giovanni Soranzo, in 1319. At the start of the 14th century, Venice was one of the greatest cities in Europe and highly advanced. All areas of the lagoon were connected by bridges, public illumination was common, and there were also plans to have the roads paved. It was the second city in Italy after Naples, with an estimated 100,000 inhabitants. As well as its absolute dominance over trade and commerce, Venice was also a producer of wool, silk, textiles in general, and of course, glass. New technological developments meant that the Arsenale, the shipbuilding area of the city, had become even more effective and could turn out a galley in a matter of days. With the new developments also in firepower, these ships were a formidable force on the seas. Despite all of this, we saw that Venice got off to a rocky start in the 14th century, 
and we will see that it didn't get much better for them. Indeed, at the beginning of the 1300s, they had lost a war against a coalition formed by the Pope over control of the city of Ferrara. And then a whole series of plots and intrigues rocked the city, leaving it unstable for almost all of the 1320s. If you want a bit of a refresher on this and are not sure quite where to go, you can head back to episode 108, Italians Against Stairs. At the same time, things had not all been bad for Venice, and they had managed to acquire a land empire that was not far off in the east, but next door on the Italian mainland, as the Dogato, the time of Doge of Francesco Dandolo, drew to a close with his death in 1339. After a three-year period with a Gradenigo, Bartolomeo Gradenigo, as Doge, the title passed to another Dandalo, Andrea, in 1342. He was a great scholar and collected many laws and a history of Venice, while under his Dogato, quite a lot of unpleasant history was being made. Indeed, the 1340s were a period of violent storms, frequent flooding, an earthquake, famine in 1347, and of course, starting in 37 and in 1348, the Great Plague, which killed an estimated 40 to 70% of the inhabitants of Venice. The controlled cities in many parts of Venice's vast Mediterranean empire took advantage of this difficult moment to rebel, forcing Venice to spread its resources even further to quash the rebellions. There was some good news in this dark period. Indeed, thanks also to an unusual alliance with the arch-enemy Genoa, Venice managed to defeat the Turks in 1343, putting a temporary pause on their expansion in the Mediterranean. This alliance, however, was far from the start of a beautiful friendship. Indeed, in 1350, hostilities with Genoa opened up again. Genoa first gained a victory in the waters of the Bosphorus, but then Venice got its revenge thanks also to an alliance with the Aragonese at the Battle of Loyera. Having said this, Venice and Genoa beat the crap out of each other so many times that you are forgiven if you don't remember them all. Just to prove the point, Genoa then turned around and allied with the Visconti while Venice made up an alliance with other northern cities and got clobbered. Doge Andrea Dandolo, however, did not get the bad news because he was dead by 1354 and nothing gets in the way of you receiving bad news like your own death. The next Dodger to come along was a man by the name of Marine Fallier. Now, in the place where his portrait was supposed to be hanging in the Dodger's palace in Venice, there was a black shroud. Why is that, I hear you ask? Well, we will discover it after this quick break. As we were saying before the break, 
the next person to come along and be dodger was a chap by the name of Marine Fallier. Now, he really didn't like the whole business about the dodger just being a figurehead and all of the power being in the hands of the oligarchy. In particular, with the Major Consiglio, the main executive body of the Republic, composed principally of the richest families who had made their titles hereditary, as we saw at the beginning of the episode. There was also a further council, even more exclusive, made up of ten prominent men of the Serenissima. The Dodger had to ask the council for permission for all kinds of things. For example, but not limited to, talking with ambassadors. Therefore, Dodger Fallier hatched a cunning plan to overthrow the council by capturing its most prominent members and restoring more power to himself. After all, he looked around and he saw absolute rulers all over the place the Visconti in Milan, the Della Scala in Verona, the Este in Ferrara, the Da Carrara in Padova, and we need to keep them in mind, and the King of Hungary, and so on and so forth. It was all probably made up later to have a colourful story, but if we want to believe these stories, but we could say that his attempt was doomed to fail from the very beginning of his tenure as Dodger, with a series of dark omens. For example, on the day of his election, a heavy fog had settled over the city, and people kept getting lost. This apparently meant that the new Dodger entered his palace from the wrong direction, passing under the columns that were reserved to the passage of those condemned. To death. The idea of the conspiracy was relatively simple. The members of the council would be called to the palace with an excuse. The Genoese had been sighted within the lagoon and the city was in grave danger. This is rather ironic because it was about to actually happen a couple of decades later. Once inside the palace, the members of the council were all to be killed and then the conspirators would go around burning down their houses and killing their families. Such a lovely plan. Pretty straightforward, right? As Blackadder would have said it, a plan so cunning you could put a tail on it and call it a fox. Well, the problem with a conspiracy is you have to be careful who you involve in it. In this particular one, a rather chatty member seems to have been involved. The council were warned of the intentions of the Dodger and simply met elsewhere for their own emergency meeting in which they decided to have the Dodger arrested. He was quickly tried and executed. That, my dear listeners, is why, instead of his likeness in the Duke's Palace in Venice, there hung a black shroud, a sign of infamy for this traitor of the Republic. The plot which was supposed to take the power away from the oligarchy in Venice and reconcentrate it into the hands of the Dodger only really served to give even more power to the oligarchy who was seen as having 
acted well and swiftly in the face of imminent danger to the freedom of the Serenissima. The traitor dodger was followed by one who stayed for such a short time, 1355 to 1356, that he is not really worth mentioning, if not for his nickname, which was Big Nose. This obviously took me straight back to the opening scene of The Life of Brian by Monty Python, but I'm not really going to go anywhere with that. His real name was Giovanni Gradenigo. We can also mention his time as Dodger because it was one of those times in which Venice and Genova reached a peace agreement, but only really because Genova at the time was controlled by the Visconti and the Genoese were sort of forced to make peace with Venice. Hostilities would start up again pretty quickly. Meanwhile, this peace came at a pretty good time for Venice, as they were particularly worried due to those annoying Hungarians. With that I mean that the Venetians were annoyed by the Hungarians. I do not find Hungarians annoying at all, except for those who wish to trample all over human rights, but you don't have to be Hungarian to do that. We have plenty of human rights violators here in our own little backyard in Italy. This particular Hungarian was once again the king, Louis, who was gobbling up bits of land that Venice had their eyes on like there was no tomorrow. In any case, Dodger Big Nose did not really have much time to have to deal with this, and the task fell to a dolphin. This doesn't mean an actual dolphin, like when presumably Caligula had made his horse a senator. It seems he didn't really do that. But it was a guy called Dolphin who became Dodger in 1356 and would rule until 1361. So, with their new dolphin leader, thanks for all the fish, Venice had to face the mounting pressure of the Hungarian expansion as well as the increasing naval power of the Turks in the east. It was the Hungarian situation which would put the pressure on the quickest, and soon after the new Dodger was elected, the Hungarian troops arrived almost at the confines of the lagoon, and Venice was forced to sue for a heavy peace. The danger for the moment had been thwarted, but soon the most serene republic would face the greatest danger to its existence for decades, and it would indeed see the terrible sight of the hated Genoese sails within the very waters of its own lagoon. Thank you, yes, you very, very much for listening. Thanks also to my wonderful Patreon supporters, starting with the first part of the Marguerite Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G., Brian J., Carrie W., Celine, Chanel, Chris, David L., Dean V., Douglas, Emily B., Federica R., Francesco A., Gabriel S., Greg, Ignazio, Il Valentino, James C., Jeff M., Jeffrey W., Joseph S., Juan, Julia, and Old John in Milwaukee. Also the tippy-tippy top level, Maria Montessori, 
and Dante Ligieri, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat and Sen. Thank you, thank you, one and all. Remember, if you are so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com or you can go to our social media, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and get chatting to us with questions, doubts, philosophical issues, whatever you want. We probably won't be able to answer, but give it a try anyway. You can also click through to our support page where you can become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content. It's been a bit slow recently, guys, but more stuff is coming along. Last but definitely not least, I wish to thank a couple of people for some really nice reviews. Thank you, thank you, thank you to AMH1964 in the United States and a big, big thank you to James in Chicago, obviously in the United States, for his wonderful review. You are far, far too kind. I don't deserve it, James, but thank you. Thank you very much. If you have been thinking of putting in a review, there's a big debate in the podcasting world as to whether it helps, but I certainly do enjoy reading them, so if you have been thinking about putting in a review, please go ahead and do that. I will very much enjoy reading them. Once again, thanks very much to you for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.